that was a a weird moment watching the sun come up in Nashville for the first time. Hadn't slept. My truck had, well, maybe a, a little box of clothes, an electric guitar, an acoustic guitar, and a couple pairs of boots, you know? And that's it. And I think I had 60 bucks cash left. Welcome to the Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show today. And today we're fortunate to have Logan Mize. He's a country singer and a songwriter, uh, well-known for Better Off Gone. Uh, welcome to the show, Logan. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I guess for those that don't know me, I just, um, uh, I'm a country music singer, for lack of a better term. I mean, i it, maybe he's Heartland Rock, Americana, you know, I kind of cover a lot of those bases, but um, yeah, and I've been just a touring musician for, gosh, the last 10, 11 years full-time, so, um, and then off and on before that with, you know, some bad breaks here and there, and, um, but yeah, most people probably know, if, they, if they're going to know anything about me, it's through the song Better Off Gone, which was kind of our biggest one to date, so. Okay. And could you talk, take us back to how you first got involved in music? Oh, gosh. Um, well, as a career, it wasn't until probably um, I moved to Nashville at, at the age of 20, 21, um, and just kind of, I guess, found my way. So, you know, really clumsily, you know, I didn't go to school, get a degree or anything like that for it. Um, but I started playing piano around the age of seven. Um, and I was one of those really bad students who who didn't go home and do their piano practice. Um, I showed up and didn't know anything more than I knew the week before. <laughs> and so that was very frustrating to my parents. And um, But I did get um, enough knowledge to know how chord structures work. And, um, you know, I could, I could fumble my way around on a keyboard. And then I ended up quitting. But years later, when I decided I was interested in music, playing it, um, I could kind of pick up from there, and, and I had the, the knowledge. But yeah, so I started pretty early, at an early age. So, so was it your parents' idea to get you involved? No, I think it was mine. Um, I was a huge Elton John fan when I was a little kid. Okay. So of course, I wanted to learn to play piano. <laughs> um, but then I realized that going to piano lessons wasn't as fun as, you know, dressing up in a cool outfit and, <laughs> you know, singing uh, Benny and the Jets, you know. <laughs> so when you started picking it back up, what happened? Uh, I started on guitar, actually. So, uh, and I didn't even realize until years into playing guitar that the string was set up like a piano. It was just like I had six little pianos on my guitar <laughs> fretboard, you know. Um, it it was really it which sounds stupid, but I didn't even know um, really how chords and anything like that worked until I, you know, years after I'd picked up the guitar and started writing songs, sat back down at a piano and and all this stuff started like lights started going off in my head. It's like oh, I've known this you know since I was seven, but I'd never put it all together. And um, so yeah, I just kind of probably around the age of I would say eighteen, maybe seventeen or eighteen was really, really into 
writing songs, um, or at least attempting to, um, and was usually in my bedroom at home, locked in there, um, practicing singing, probably from the age 15 on, never would have told anybody, never was going to try out for choir or anything like that, because I was way too nervous to, and sometimes still am, to get in front of people. Oh. And so it was one of those things that like didn't come out until maybe I, I was off at college and I felt like I could be somebody different, you know, and, and that's when I started actually playing out and, and that's kind of where it just started from there. And so what were practices looking like for you at this point in time? Uh, when you were back, uh, start becoming serious about performing. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I was honestly, by the time I got to college, I was like sitting in my dorm room or, um, wherever I was living and I was just playing nonstop around the clock at home, skipping class. I was on the football team, um, skipping football practice at the time, you know, coaches didn't like me very much. <laughs> and, uh, but I was obsessed with it. It just became an obsession. And it started like, I think I'd always been really obsessed with the idea of, I want to play music and do that for a living. But then once I really started figuring out and piecing it together and, oh, I can write a song and hey, this isn't half bad. And then you play it for somebody and they, hey, people actually like this, you know, then it becomes addicting and then you're doing it nonstop. So pretty much every waking hour of the day is practicing, you know, cause you're, and you're not even knowing you're practicing, but you're just playing, you know? So what happens next? Um, I think, it was around the time I, I realized my grades were suffering and I dropped out of three different colleges in less than two and a half years <laughs> and uh, made a lot of coaches mad along the way, but I, I was just obsessed. And so I decided I'm going to move to Nashville and actually do this. Now, when I went to Southern Illinois, um, which was uh, the, the first big university I went to, I'd gone to a junior college for like half a semester, well, about a semester. And then transferred out freshman year, second semester to Southern Illinois, was on the team there. And I transferred there kind of knowing that Nashville was only three hours from there. Cause you're right on the tip of, uh, you know, the very bottom end of Illinois, right on the Kentucky border. So you can just buzz down to Nashville pretty quick. And I kind of knew that going in thinking I can get down to Nashville. And I did about every Monday night, I'd go to Nashville and I'd play the the bluebird or at least sign up to play songwriting nights so from every monday going down there i knew i really want to be here and uh, so i just couldn't work up the actual courage i think um, i got intimidated by it i was like man everybody's so good um so when i finally dropped out at southern illinois it was like two years after i'd started um so maybe halfway through my junior year um i moved back to kansas and I decided I'm gonna to go to a real music school and then I'll go to Nashville, thinking like, I'm gonna learn something at college. Like, anyway, so I enrolled uh, at Wichita State University in the music program and uh, I made it two weeks. And these <laughs> guys were like, it was jazz guitar classes and stuff like that. And these guys were playing circles around me. And I was like, hey, I just wanna put chords together and make up, you know, lyrics. So, uh, dropped out of that, and then I just started framing houses in Wichita. Um, and I was living in Clearwater, 
which is my hometown. It's like maybe a half hour south of Wichita. And uh, I, after about eight months, I was just sick of myself. You know, I, 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 was, I just couldn't believe that I had dropped out of three colleges to move to Nashville and I was framing houses for eight bucks an hour in Wichita. And so I just, you know, I finally said the heck with it and I just packed up my truck and I had this crappy old F-150, you know, stick shift and um, the clutch barely worked in it. And uh, I, dro I drove it all the way to Nashville, three o'clock in the afternoon. Made it there about 3 a.m. And I I had known one guy um, that he played the fiddle and uh, I showed up at his apartment. He, I had an address written on a piece of paper. This is before the days of having a, you know, smartphone with you all the time. Um, I had a cell phone, but it was like that old Nokia brick. That, <laughs> yeah. uh, the different color plates that you could put on there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, called him and, and he was, he wasn't answering, I guess. Um, so I was banging on his window and woke up let me in and that was that was my the beginning of my journey in Nashville. <laughs> so it sounds and correct me if I'm wrong but it sounds like it was in part not even from the beginning with your piano lessons not liking the structure of of that you know and kind of versus just playing right and and just experimenting I guess um, but also sounds like you were go you were going to that program in search of of confidence or something to Kind of feel like you could build upon mm -hmm. you're probably right I, I probably felt like um, maybe if i know a little bit more about what i'm doing um musically anyway i won't everyone won't realize that i'm just a hack you know <laughs> <laughs> at some point i had to just realize that i'm a hack and that's how it's going to be but yeah that's that'll be a, a probably a, a trend that you'll notice is structure is not my favorite uh, <laughs> Thing. I never would have made it in the military. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at your friend's house. He lets you in. What happens next in your story? Well, it's three o'clock in the morning. He he worked at a bar in Nashville. Um, he was a bartender there, and uh, so he had he hadn't been home long. Um, he'd gotten off work, you know, at like two two thirty or something. And um, so we sat out in the front porch, and I th I think we smoke some weed and and uh, you know like I can't believe you actually showed up here I never thought you'd actually move and I was like I didn't think I would either and then watched the sun come up and then it was like I just you know that was a a weird moment watching the sun come up in Nashville for the first time hadn't slept my truck had well maybe a, a little box of clothes an electric guitar an acoustic guitar and a couple pairs of boots, you know, and that's it. And I think I had 60 bucks cash left um, and no bank account, nothing like that. Um, but I did have a CDL driver's license so that because I, that was one good, one smart thing I did in college. <laughs> I went and brought a truck driving instructor in and said, anybody who wants to um, take part in, in the truck driving class, you know, you can, I think my scholarship might've paid for it, paid for it. So Went and took the truck driving class and someone said, if you have a CDL, you'll never have to worry a day in your life about work. You can always find work. And they were right because the sun came up in Nashville and I was like, I got 60 bucks. I don't know what I'm going to do. Obviously, I can't start making money playing music uh, right away. Um, so 
I just found an ad in the paper. They said somebody needed a, a dump truck driver and I had a job within like 24 hours. So and that was basically what I was doing. I was waking up pretty early every morning, driving a truck for eight hours. And then when I'd get off about four o'clock, um, I'd go straight down to lower Broadway um, or Midtown or wherever. And I would just go bar to bar to bar, listening to songwriters or musicians, meeting people, um, figuring out what places had open mic nights. And I did that for months, just every, every night. And then it got to the point where I even met enough people. I, I got a security job down in lower or on second Avenue. Um, and I was doing security down there and that got me down more into the music scene, you know, cause I was working down there late and I'd meet musicians late at night. So I did that for like, um, gosh, I think it was eight or nine months. Um, and then I got really lucky and, uh, one of these guys I'd met, um, I met this guy, his name was Will Vance. He's still, he's still a musician. He lives in, I think Hammond, Louisiana, really cool blues kind of guy, singer songwriter. Um, but he was in Nashville at the time and met him and we were at a songwriters night at a place called past perfect on third. It was on third Avenue. No longer there. I don't think it's probably a condo or a high rise now. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we really hit it off and decided we were gonna start a band. And this is probably like maybe five months after I've lived in Nashville, still working my normal job. Um, he was working in Clarksville as a bartender. And I said, you don't wanna do that. You're spending too much driving. So just move in with me. It'll be easier to run a band if we live in the same house and then you can just pay me rent. Well, he quit his job. So of course he wasn't paying me rent, but he was <laughs> and um, we, we had a little storage unit, like in Gallatin, I think. And we'd go up there and practice and start just like putting band members together. Um, and so I'd be at work all day, you know, driving the truck uh, and calling people on Craigslist. Saying, you know, hey, do you want to be in a band? You know, we got a bass player, get a, we had a fiddle player, we got a guitar player. We convinced uh, my a childhood friend of mine to drop out of petroleum engineering school. He had one semester left at, at Kansas University. <laughs> wow. Dropped everything left, came out, moved in with us, became our drummer. At which point I decided I don't need to, I don't need to drive a truck anymore. I'm going to make it big with this band, you know. Uh, so I quit, which is stupid. <laughs> and then we started getting eviction notices on the door. You got to remember, you know, I'm a I'm, I'll be 35 tomorrow. <laughs> I'm, I'd like to think I'm a lot wiser. At this time, I was 20, barely 21 years old. So really stupid, really naive, um, but really energetic and optimistic. So, which I still am, but I just have a little bit more wisdom maybe to go with it now. That, so that's a question that I've, as you've been telling your story that I've been thinking about is what was it like during this time period, you know, leading up to, to meeting him and and getting this band going what was that like mentally it was exhilarating because you know there was no um i hadn't been told no about anything mm -hmm. you know it wasn't like i hadn't been rejected by anybody this is before you have a thousand people telling you you suck go home you know, um in in a nice nicer way than that but you know still you hear it sometimes not <laughs> um I was just so energetic and I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine it not 
working out. You know, it just seemed, um, the future seemed bright. I was excited. Every day was just a huge rush and I couldn't wait to wake up and hurry up and get my job done. Uh, I was, I'd listen to the big 98, um, that station in Nashville back when Jerry house was hosting it and he was a great host. So I, I remember just listening to that all day, every song that came on, I'm looking up songwriters, you know, trying to figure out who wrote it, who produced it. And then that night, get off work, go downtown and try to find those people. You know, it was just really exciting. So you're doing all this. Were you intimidated by the sheer volume of other performers? I, I was at first, the first time when I was coming down when I was in college. And that's when I decided to go to the music school. But the, for some reason, when I got out there to actually live there, um, and started realizing that there were a lot of people just like me, it, it, that completely disappeared. And for some reason, I, I had way more confidence than I really needed, um, which I wish I still had, uh, you know. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just ready to rock, man. I, nothing, nothing could have stopped me. And so as you, go ahead. No, you go again. So as you're making these uh, connections, what happens? Do they come to fruition? Uh, does it, does it work out? Well, what happened was, um, so my, um, my friend Will, who I'd started the band with, we were kind of both the singers and we were both writing um, and both, he was kind of playing more guitar than I was, but um, he had this song plugger. I didn't know what a song plugger was, which for the, anyone listening in Nashville or music towns, there's, you know, people who take songwriters songs for a fee, um, you know, pay them a monthly fee or whatever. And we'll go plug your songs to major record labels so we can get your songs kept by George Strait, you know. Um, he was paying a girl. And I said, man, that sounds like a scam. You know, it sounds like you're getting ripped off. You don't want to be paying this girl to plug your songs. And he's like, no, 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 you, you need to come meet her. And um, I said, okay. And this is after I'd quit my trucking job and literally had no money. I mean, maybe I may have been down to like 40 bucks, you know. It was to the point where I couldn't put gas in my truck and I would walk down to the gas station and get 25 cent granola bars. That's what I was living off of. It didn't even care. It didn't phase me. Fig somehow figured to find beer. Figured that out. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> uh, I go meet the song plugger, and she's like, we tell her about our band. She's like, that's really interesting. You guys should come meet my partner um, who runs a song plugging company with me. So we go do that, and then they're like, we want to come watch your band rehearsal. And so they come watch the band rehearsal and they're like, this is really good. Um, you should come play for this guy. He's a singer song, or he's a songwriter, um, Brett Jones, and he owns a publishing company. He's looking to sign somebody. And I was like, what's a publishing company? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no clue. So we go into the meeting uh, or he, he takes us down to the publishing company, walk in and he asks me, to play him a song. And this is when I still would just walk in a room and play a song for anybody, didn't flinch, no nerves, nothing. Um, and he was like, wow, this is really good. I'm gonna sign you to a publishing deal. And I'm like, I don't, what does that mean? You know, he's like, <laughs> I pay you to write songs. And then my partner in the band, Will, 
was in there and he didn't really say much to him. And then I get home that night and he calls and he's really excited. I'm like, what about my band? What about Will? Um, and he's like, no, 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 you just need, you need to put a new band together. That band isn't the great, greatest from what I hear. And uh, I don't want that other guy. Will gets distraught and moves home to Louisiana. Um, the band kind of hangs on for maybe a year. They start dropping off and moving home, um, which is smart to their credit. I think my friend Jeremy, uh, who was our drummer, moved back to um, Kansas, finished petroleum engineering school, and now he's making way more money than he would have played my band. So, um, yeah, so then it was just me, and I was at a publishing company figuring it out from like pros. And it, the really cool thing was uh, Brett Jones is somebody who, without knowing, I was really into his songs because um, in college there was a song called You Won't Ever Be Lonely by Andy Griggs. And for some reason, that was like the first cover song I learned how to play all the way through. I'd already written several songs, but I didn't have time to learn you know, cover songs. Well, finally, I started to learn one. That was the first one I learned. Played it at parties. Girls loved it, you know. And then um, there's a song called Don't Ask Me How I Know by Bobby Pinson. And uh, I thought that was just a brilliant song. And I was obsessed with that whole record. Well, I walk into his office that day he signed me. And those are two of the so his biggest songs that he'd written. You know, it's like, wow, okay. And then all the other songs he'd written, I was fans of and or a fan of. So uh, it was really it kind of felt like it was meant to be, you know? Um, so I, I really learned how to write a good song from Brett. And um, there was two other songwriters there. Dallas Davidson was one. He was a brand new writer um, in town and he had just written Honky Tonk Badonkadonk. Uh, <laughs> was about to go on to write a billion more. God, I mean, how many number ones has Dallas written? 50, something like that. I don't know. Um, so Dallas rented a little apartment downstairs and people were constantly over there from Luke Bryan, Billy Currington, um, Jamie Johnson, Jared Neiman, all those guys were in and out of that building all day. Um, so as a kid, you know, a 21 year old kid, you're seeing all these guys come and go, Randy Hauser, you know, um, and I'm just floored, you know, it's, it's crazy how talented everybody is. And, and then Brett is teaching me, you know, songwriting 101 in the upstairs part every day it was like it was kind of a dream come true you know it was really crazy that I, I show up in Nashville and, and less than a year later like that's the, the position I got really lucky I, I don't know how it happened so that made me curious uh, how did your original songs stand up to the scrutiny once you became a better songwriter did you still like the early ones so one of the first songs I actually wrote when I still lived at home in Kansas, um, when I was in and out of college, I think I, I don't even know if I had um, started at Wichita State yet. I think I was still going to Southern Illinois, maybe home for Christmas or something. I had written a song called Boys From Back Home. It was about a friend of mine that was that went off to the war in Iraq right out of high school. And I was playing that one all the time. And when I got to Brett's place in Nashville, um, and I played him that song. He was like, wow, this is, this is really good. And he changed a couple lines for me. He's like, I'm not going to take any songwriter credit. And he didn't. Um, but he helped me change a couple lines that were a little bit like amateur sounding. And, um, it's still one of my biggest songs. Like when I go play it, 
you know, depends what region we're in, but people are yelling at me all night. It's like the uh, cult <laughs> classic song, you know, how to play it. So yeah, that one stood, stood up. There was a lot, there was maybe 50 other ones that, no, I have, I don't even know where they're at. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what happens after, uh, I think you said after your first year is when that was going on. Uh, what happens next? So having success that early really helped, you know, at least getting the publishing deal. It really helped my confidence um, even more. And it kind of made me feel unstoppable, you know. So um, I haven't heard no from anybody. This guy, Brett, you know, he was he was really instrumental in that. He's like, you're going to be bigger than the Dixie Chicks. And this is at a time where maybe that would have been appealing to me um, uh, to be a big, famous star, you know. Um, and uh, it was it was great. So I'm still messing with this this whole time. I'm still putting bands together. You know, people quit. I put a new person in there. We're playing on Broadway. I'm doing cover songs down there at night, um, which was really good for me too. Um, so, and then I and then I were also playing original gigs. And then I was calling around as my own agent, trying to get us opening. Um, I think Pat Green was the first one we got. Pat Green go somewhere uh, maybe Kansas or Nebraska and that this is my first time playing out gigs in a band you know it was really exciting and at the end of the year there was a lot of things that happened um, but at the end of the year uh, Brett didn't want to renew uh, my publishing deal and so I think that his publishing company might have uh, ended I don't know what happened because he started writing for somebody else he started writing for a pub company so it didn't end well. We got into it about something I can't even remember now. Um, and we got sideways and then bam, I'm back on the streets in Nashville with no publishing deal, um, looking for a job. So that was like my first uh, moment of like, okay, this could have some challenges to it, you know? <laughs> it's not all up. <laughs> yeah, so I think I took a job weed eating on a weed eating crew. We were we were cutting grass and um, still doing the band as much as I could, but uh, it, it was starting to take a toll trying to pay rent and all that. So, and I'd gone to every, I started going around to other publishing companies and uh, whenever I could trying to get new publishing deal. But yeah, I went to every single publishing company on Music Row. Every single one of them was like, no, you, you don't have the songs, you're not there, whatever. But then I made round two. I went to every single publishing company again. And then I'd scrounge up a few more on the way. I'd hear about some startup publishing companies. And if I couldn't get, um, if I couldn't get them to say yes or bite, I'd at least ask for a co-write with, with one of their writers. Mm. Um, and that would kind of get me in with some of the writers and the pluggers and they'd get used to seeing my face around. Um, but it started really interfering with my work schedule because I like I got to make money but these people want to write at 10 a.m. Um, so that's when I really started bouncing around from job to job and things got really sketchy um, to the point that I didn't have a place to live anymore. Um, I got evicted from a house uh, one of the band houses we had and was living in my suburban and uh, that which I'd, I'd sold that old f-150 at one point got the suburban that's what we were touring in and I had this little crappy trailer behind it. 
and I loaded up everything I owned and I was taking it around, selling it on Craigslist um, for money and then going to co-writes during the day. Um, but I could not get another publishing deal. I just couldn't, it, it seemed impossible. Um, so this is around the time I met my wife. Uh, I'm homeless, living in a, in a suburban and I have, oh yeah, there she is. Boom. Kind of have a band, uh, kind of have some things going. Um, but she's like, you got to get your life together. You are an absolute wreck. Um, I had a big beard. I think my hair was down to, which nothing wrong with that. But mine wasn't a style thing. It was just more, I can't afford to go get a haircut, you know. <laughs> um, so she's the one who convinced me, like, why don't you just make a record? Why don't, I'm like, well, I can't afford that. And she's like, well, offer up somebody, some of your, your publishing or, um, you know, ask somebody to invest in it and you can pay them back. Um, so she helped me write up this big thing, um, this proposal, you know, and I sent it to everyone I knew and was able to round up enough money to make a record. Um, so let me see if I can turn those notifications off. I'm sorry. So I did. And then all of a sudden I could go play. The record kind of started catching fire around the places that we'd played around my home state in Kansas. Uh, and it started spreading from there. Um, and that's really, that's really where it started was her kind of being like, get it together, make a record and either do this or just go get a job. Cause like you don't have anything going on. So that's what kind of started the whole thing for me. When prior to her saying that, and then after she said that, what was, what was your mindset? Cause you had talked before about always feeling optimistic and it being exhilarating. What was it like at this point of your story? I think I was still pretty optimistic, but I, um, after, after all the, uh, evictions and, and, uh, the, you know, every publishing company in town telling, you no. I mean, that's you start to hear no a lot. You start to hear, oh, that's not maybe very good there was no bitterness or any jaded part of me yet, but uh, I started to realize like, okay, this is going to be really challenging. Um, but I'd never even, it never occurred to me, like maybe making a record, you know, it was like, just not something that crossed my mind, which you think that would be an obvious first step, but it never occurred to me. So as you're moving, um, from the struggle and you said you didn't have money to afford a haircut and she's now encouraging you to take these next steps. What's going through your mind at this point? Uh, I guess uh, at that time, um, I was kind of thinking, I'm trying to remember that was a foggy period, you know, cause it, it uh, when you're living in a car, it's like, you kind of that there's a desperate feeling which it was kind of it was kind of like fun for me at first it was kind of like ah and then do I need to move home um so when I made the record and and I met Jill and and we kind of I moved in with her so then I wasn't homeless anymore and then my, my dad would call and make fun of me he's like you know you know what they call a musician without a girlfriend I'm like what homeless yeah <laughs> yeah so she was, she was working a job at the hospital and um, I had made the record and started playing shows 
And it, it was at the point where we would get home and I couldn't, wasn't making enough to pay the band. So she would use some of her uh, check from the hospital to pay my band members. So she was really supportive. Um, and then shortly after I'd made the record, I, I got a, one of the publishing companies that had turned me down three times, Big Yellow Dog. Um, I called him up a fourth time. I have a record now and I want to come, come back in and, and meet with you. And that's when, um, that's when I got my second publishing deal, which turned into a record deal development kind of situation. And then at that point I had some stability. I felt good. And, um, I was like, okay, you know, this girl completely, you know, got me on track. And that's when I proposed to Jill we got married that year. I signed with Big Yellow Dog and, and then we were kind of off to the races. And that's when everything that is now kind of started. So, I mean, reaching out three, four times, that takes a lot of what one psychologist, Angela Duckworth, has called grit. Where, where do you think you got that from? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I probably come from a long line of stubborn folks in my family. <laughs> um, my grandfather, he's an, he was an entrepreneur, you know, he got home from World War II and he started a grocery store um, from nothing. I think he started in a one car garage. Um, this is my, uh, on my dad's side, my dad's dad started a, it's called Mises. Um, and uh, he grew it into what's now, you know, the only grocery store in our town. Um, and I don't know, I, f I always felt like that probably took a lot of uh, determination, you know? And then my grandparents on the other side, you know, came from poor families um, and, you know, kind of self-made um, success. So I think it just comes from all sides. And so you're now signed to the, uh, to the new label. Uh, what happens after that? Yeah, so they were like, this is really good. Um, we like this record. And well, when I first walked into the meeting, it was my fourth time coming in there. I hadn't actually met Carla Wallace, the woman who runs the label. And so, or this, the publishing company at the time. Um, and she had her back to me in a swivel chair. And my record was, uh, I think, I can't even remember what song, but it was on my first little album. It was playing and she, I think it was the first song on there and she was halfway through the song. She hits pause, whips around in her chair and she was like, tell me how you're any different than Dirk's Bentley. And, uh, like you're, he's not a Southern guy and I'm not either. And you're so used to all these Southern, you know, type people in country music that you're just, you're picking up a hint of something different. You know, I promise you, I'm not anything like him. And, She's like, well, grab that guitar and play me something else. And I don't like this song. So I played her a song that I'd just written. And she's like, oh, I really like that. You know, she's like, you should make another record. And and then by 2 p.m. that day, I had a had a publishing deal. Carrie O'Neill, who owns the place, um, real influential guy in the music business, um, owns O'Neill Hageman. Um, anyway, great publisher. He's like, hey, we kind of want to do a development thing with you. So let's take some of these new songs that we really like. Maybe we can start working towards another record. I just turned those messages off and I don't know what they're doing. So sorry. Um, so 
yeah, for sure. Let's do it. And so we kind of set out, um, they started booking me a bunch of co-writes. So I'm back to co-writing full time. And, and, um, I made friends with Daniel Tashin, who's a writer at Big Yellow Dog still is. And I asked him to be a producer, um, on my second album and Big Yellow Dog, um, sent me in with him. We did 10 songs. My second album came out and they introduced me to a booking agent at William Morris, um, Jay Williams. And, and then Jay got me started playing show, like real shows, got me as opening act. Um, Leanne Rhymes took me to, uh, to UK to tour over there with her. Um, so a lot of things really started moving at that point. Um, my manager, Charlie, um, I, I kind of skipped over that. The guy who was, uh, so the song plugger at the beginning of the story who got me signed to the, uh, my first publishing deal, her partner, uh, his name was Charlie Salvatore, uh, ended up staying with me through the whole thing and became my manager and still is to this day. So he was tour managing Leanne Rhymes and that's how I got on that tour. But it, just little things like that started happening. He was growing through the business, so was I. And um, yeah, just, it, yeah, went from there. What does thoughts are going through your mind now that you've gone from being homeless to now things are actually moving for you. What does that feel like? It felt good. You know, I, a lot of changes were happening. Um, I, Joel had, we had our first kid. Um, we bought our first house. Um, and, um, then, you know, you're trying to figure out how to pay for the house. So then it's like the fun of like, Ooh, I'm playing music and I have a band. Is That's over. Then it's like, I got to figure out how to start making money at these gigs, you know? Um, and you st there's still like the publishing stipend, but now we have a baby at home and I'm like, Julie, you can't work 16 hour shifts at St. Thomas anymore. Like she's like, no, I want to be able to stay home with the kids. And so um, then it was like, well, we got a tour more. So it just, it, you know, it kind of snowballs from there. Um, and then you're gone more and it's just, there's a lot you know a lot of learning was going on um so fast forward you know maybe a couple years of just that step and re repeat thing of like let's tour um and try to make more money and then our fan base grew enough to where um oh we put out some more singles after that album came out and then Sirius XM radio came into play and John Mark started spinning our stuff at Sirius XM um, and that really helped grow the touring base. Um, and one of the songs on there I had written and produced myself, uh, with my road band. Um, so one of the things in Nashville that's really exciting when you first start making demos is the, the uh, studio musicians. And I, I just thought it was so cool to go in there and watch those guys work. You know, you write a song and those guys turn it into something that sounds like a radio hit you know in a matter of three minutes um but it got it, that started to get a little bit like you know start noticing hey these guys are just showing up for a nine to five they don't care about my song you know these these guys they they're nice and they're fun to hang out with but like they're just going in there and you know clocking in and there's so many times i went in after the new wore off where i was like i want you to play this way and i want you to um do this and they're just like they're not hearing it they're just going to do it and then move on to the next song so i stopped using 
session musicians and started using my road guys. Um, and I'd go in with them and I felt like they cared about the song. They were excited to be in the studio. Uh, so my, my music started sounding really different and started kind of taking on a life of its own. Um, I felt like I had my own little stamp on it. Um, and that's when it started getting noticed, uh, you know, by Sirius XM and, and um, maybe other little radio stations here and there. So from that, we had a song that was really cranking on there. I think it sold 150,000 copies, you know. Um, this is before Big Yellow Dog was kind of, a, kind of a record label. You know, it was just basically a publishing company. But so they were like, we got to get you a, a record deal. And that's about the time that Sony um, uh, stepped in and was my first record deal. But that wasn't, I'd been pitched to record labels like throughout that time. Um, gosh, I don't know. I've been turned down just to throw the number. I've been turned down by every record label in Nashville um, five plus times. So through the years, I'd even done showcases for them. And, and uh, there was one for Sony before they signed me. I showed up for this uh, showcase that they paid for. And the CEO left before I played the first song, just decided, I don't know, left. Somebody I think was what happened. Um, you gotta have some tough skin to be in your industry, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and then, you know, weird ones. There was weird ones too, like where they'd take me into, I think it was Capitol Records at the time and play acoustic for, uh, you know, Mike Dungan. And, you know, he's just kind of looking at you like, what are you doing tomorrow? And, uh, okay, thanks. You know, thanks for coming in. Don't come back. There was one email from, uh, I'll, I'll just say his name because I don't care, Scott Hendricks at Warner Brothers. Uh, I've been pitched to him so many times uh, through Big Yellow Dog, my management company, whoever, saying, please sign this kid. Um, he finally sent back on maybe the fifth or sixth time. If I have to hear this guy's name or see it in my email one more time, I'm going to lose it. Like, do not send me any more Logan My songs. Do not pitch him to me and yeah and I did I had more meetings with him and have been rejected from him three times since that email so um yeah anyway I got my first record deal at Sony after they passed on me where the guy walked out maybe six months after that and then I got my first taste of like this is how the music industry really works this is what's going on and uh that's when maybe my enthusiasm or excitement about everything um don't get me wrong i'm still excited i still love doing this but that's where everything really changed it was like i got and then i had my second child so i have a daughter at home son at home wife's not working i have a record deal and i'm home maybe six hours once a week and that's it you know it really everything dramatically changed so was it strictly the time away from home that you didn't like or was there something else no, there was a lot of things. Um, and that's, that's when I really, so early on we talked about uh, my distaste for structure um, and all the fun and spontaneity and, um, you know, creativity, all the things I loved about playing music and putting bands together and touring, it was completely gone. And it had been replaced by this rigid structure of a corporate entity that, wants to 
slap a tag on you and get you in front of as many um, people as they can because they need to make money off you. And so there's no respect for like what I wanted to do or, you know, uh, that doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what I want to do. It matters how we're going to make money off you. And it was really apparent, like, there were just these moments of, of like, I'd be sitting in a car and, you know, riding somewhere in like New Jersey um, to get on the second plane for the day, just being like, I hate this. I, what am I doing? I completely hate this. I haven't seen my kids in weeks. Um, and that's when I really had to start digging deep, you know, and figuring out like it, this isn't just like a phase anymore. This is like a big life choice. Do I want to stick with this or, you know, because this has become something that I'm, I don't recognize at all. If you knew at the beginning, which you can't ever really know this necessarily, right? But if you knew at the beginning when you were first really trying to, to make it um, in music, would you have taken the same path? I don't know. That's a good question. I think, I think that my method of doing things is definitely trial and error. I don't like to, you know, listen to advice and read 15 books on how to do it. It's just like, just do it and be a bull in a china shop and bang around until you find your place and that's the way i did it and i don't know if i'm capable of doing it another way so that's a tough question to answer and similar um similar question um it's fascinating or interesting to me that um being rejected five times by every label or every company in nashville did not discourage you but actually getting in the door did yeah that was the weird part it was like the hunt was over you know, uh, uh, like, oh, I finally did this. I, I pounded my way in, you know, and now I'm in and I'm looking around going like, I don't know, I started to like maybe feel, I'm starting to grow up at this point. You know, I have kids, I'm not so important anymore to my, in my own life. It's like, I don't, I'm not just worrying about me. I'm worrying about um, my kids. I'm worrying about my wife. Um, I'm, you know, more concerned about real life things. Um, and then I started realizing, like, I don't know if I like all this um, attention. You know, it's constantly going into these radio stations and playing in small um, cubicles for groups of people. And I started feeling like, whoa, this isn't natural. I, I can do a stage and get up there and play with the band. That's fun. But like really having all that attention just focused on me, I, I really didn't like it. Um, I just felt like... Uh, yeah, my priorities were so different and changing all the while. It's like, well, I thought you wanted to be a star. I thought you wanted to go, <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to do it this way. You know, I don't, you're telling me I have to go play in this conference room. I don't want to. And that's when things really got tricky because I would start having really terrible anxiety. Mm -hmm. on, you know, and it was, it was um, on top of like the not being home, worrying about money. Because when you're early on in a record deal, you're not making any money. Um, and if you are, your label is taking it. So, um, you know, worrying about, and I'm not even, I don't even worry about money. I don't care. I mean, I, I can live in a suburban again, and, but I, my wife worries about it and I want my kids to have what they need. Mm -hmm. So that's churning in your head. Um, you know, there's so many things going on and then, okay, go dance monkey. You know, it's like, oh God, this is terrible. Yeah. And so are you plotting your 
exit from Nashville at this point, or is it just oh, is I, it, was I it left. abrupt? I did. I left two and a half years ago. Um, but, oh, I guess you knew that. Okay. So, it, yeah, I started, um, I started thinking about it. Um, and it wasn't like I wanted to leave Nashville. It was like uh, I just wanted to figure out how to do what I wanted to do on my own terms. And I had no idea how to get there. Um, I still felt like I needed the industry for some reason, you know, to really be behind me. Um, and but I didn't know how to get, I can't, I can't go home to Jill, my wife and say, Hey, remember how, um, we spent the last five years, you know, completely getting rejected, banging our heads against the wall. You know, you're out here with two kids, you know, we have no family. Um, I've put you through all that, but I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, you know, you get your ass out there, <laughs> you do it, you know? So I stuck with it. I really did. And the song flopped, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, they had the label made me re-record a song that had already sold 150,000 copies. And I was like, why do you want to re-record it? And that's part of the thing. They want to get their hands on, on you and they want you to be what, you know, they don't want you to be you. They want, I don't know how to say it. They just want to have their stamp on it. So, okay. Uh, you're going to dress me in this fancy shirt, do a little photo shoot and make me re-record all the songs that are already out. So John Marks at Sirius XM was the first one to be vocal about it. He's like, why would you re-record a song? It's a hit song. We're selling 10,000 copies a week. The only other song to do that was Cruise by Florida Georgia Line. And um, I think there was a Cole Swindell song that maybe did. Um, and then he, he's like, and you're re-recording re it? He's like, we got to go. This thing is moving. And Sony's putting, pumping the brakes, pumping the brakes on a release date. By the time they've decided to put the single out, it was re-recorded. John's like, pull it. They Sirius XM stops playing it, and it just completely flopped at radio. And that was about the time I think that um, Gary, who was the CEO at um, Sony, left. So then we're a headless ship at Sony, and they're trying to find somebody new to come in. And uh, my song flopped. Was like, back off the road, come right. We got to make a new record. Um, so at this point, I'm like, okay, well the fact that I felt like I had it in my grasp, I had this hit single in my grasp and I knew I was like, as much as I hate all this promo, if I can get through this at the end of the tunnel, I'll have a hit song and I'll have be able to make some money. And maybe I can just go back to playing shows rather than doing all this promotion. Um, but when it didn't work out, it was like, I was so close. I had a taste of it. I got to go try again. I started making another record, started writing for it. And, they brought in a new CEO, Randy Goodman, and Randy went through and just started dropping everybody. I think he dropped nine or 10 people and he kept me and he called me in and said, he didn't tell me why he kept me on, um, but he said he was going to let me go in and, and cut some songs of Paul Worley. I picked Paul and um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a really weird time, but uh, it was a lot of fun too. So that's kind of getting to that point was, was interesting. And are you moving back home after this? No. So at this point I was, as much as I kind of hated how the industry worked, um, I was still 
I think I was still pretty salty about how, how it all went down. I, I feel like I, I, and like I said, I can't just quit. I've come this far. Um, and that continues to be a theme too. Cause then when you don't quit that time, you go even further and it's like, well, I can't quit now. I've come. <laughs> um, I was really excited because I was making some good music and uh, Paul was awesome to work with and he really boosted my confidence um, in a way that, I, that I hadn't really had before. So after Sony had re-recorded all my stuff and used session guys, um, Paul brings me in and I'm playing guitar on everything. Um, I, he's letting me kind of co-produce and uh, co-captain the ship. And we spent four or five months making uh, a pretty small, I mean, five, five, six songs maybe. Um, and it was probably the most fun recording process I've ever been a part of. And it was just, I learned a lot from Paul, but I was really fired up about all these songs and I took them in to, to Randy. Um, you know, thanks for taking a chance on me and let me stay at the label. Uh, we just spent $100,000, you know, recording for six months. Here you go. This is going to be great. And um, it's, it was very raw, you know, uh, not slick, like anything that was, pop this is 2016. So we're in the heyday of like real bro country stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and this was completely like, sounded like seven, 1975, you know, or just mid 70s, real raw kind of rock and roll kind of deal. Um, with a little steel guitar here and there. But they're like, no, what'd you, what'd you do? This is not good. And then they drop, and then they dropped me off the label, I think at that point. No, they didn't. Uh, they said, no, we're not gonna use these songs and didn't drop me. So I went back to the studio with a different producer and recorded Ain't Always Pretty, Better Off Gone, um, uh, anything that's on that first that comeback road album from 2017 um that was kind of our, my big breakthrough album um i turned that in after i got rejected with the paul worley sessions they're like no not this either we're dropping you from the label so i'm walking out of sony with my tail between my legs thinking like what do they want? You know, I'm listening to Better Off Gone in my head going like, this is, is this not good? This is a little slicker. You know, we did put a, a slicker sound on it just to, because, you know, we want to get it to an audience and country radio is the way to do that. Um, this is before streaming was really taking hold. Um, it was starting to for sure. But um, so I'm like, okay, well, there's one guy I know, Bobby Bones, he sometimes does his own thing. I'll, I'll just send this song, Ain't Always Pretty, to him. Um, and I don't even have his email. So I looked up on like the iHeart uh, website, um, Bobby's email, send him the song um, at like 11 o'clock at night. And I wake up to my phone buzzing like it has been on this, <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, I mean, nonstop text from everybody I can think of that has my number. Oh, congratulations. Wow, sounds great on the radio. You know, this is at like 6.30 in the morning and it's happening. He plays it nine times in his shift. Um, and he's talking the song up, really excited about it. And I'm like, we turn it on the radio. He won't stop talking about this song. And then I look on the iTunes charts and we're sitting at uh, number, we're the number like five trending 
thing in the world on iTunes. And uh, we're sitting at number two on the downloads charts. And it's like, oh my God, this is, it really just happened. It finally happened. Um, so I kind of spent the day, I went outside and I went on a run just to kind of process it all. You know, I was like, I turned these songs in to, uh, to Sony after they rejected all my stuff and they rejected these. And this is my validation. This is like, you know, the world loves it. So, um, I spent kind of all day planning like how I was going to handle it. Like, okay, this is, you know, how am I going to do this? And then I came home, this is like mid afternoon and I call my manager and I call everybody at, at my publishing company, big yellow dog. And I'm like, we got to go, I guess we got to get down there and figure out what we're going to do. Cause you normally when Bobby was playing, uh, playing these songs and, and stuff like Chris Jansen, uh, Cam, uh, he'd done this for them and it was like, boom, instant hit. Um, but you got to get a label because you got to push mm -hmm. your radio um back to all the labels rejecting they have that song sitting there every single one of them no we're not interested so i'm sitting down on music girl with carrie and charlie my manager going like shaking my head and you're just seeing it like bobby stopped playing it because nothing happened he's like calling me he's like is nobody biting you don't have a label you don't have a record deal yet? Like, no, man, they're, no one's interested. No one cares. So this is about the time I end up back in Scott Hendricks's office for not the last time. The guy that said, never email me about this kid again. So I go over to Scott's, I'm sitting there and at Warner Brothers in his office. And I'm like, you know, that Bobby thing was really big. Like the, it, we got cleared at the top. He's like, yeah, yeah, I don't listen to that show. And, He's like, play me some other, what other songs you have? Uh, play him some other songs. He's like, I like some of those songs better than that. Ain't always pretty song. And she's like, this is exhausting, you know? Uh, he ended up, no, get out of it. You know, I don't want to, we don't want to do it. So I'm without a record deal again. So it's just back to touring. And uh, I, I think at this point, we decided to go ahead and just put out an EP. I tried to reach out to Bobby again, but it's like, I've already kind of played that card, you know? Um, John Marks at Spotify has been really instrumental this whole time of, of building the Spotify um, country up. And so now I you know it's pretty streaming like a hit, you know, we're consistently streaming top 30, um, like a top 30 radio hit um, without radio. Um, and that song's doing really well. And then we released the album and better off gone starts doing better than that one so stop me if you need me to tell any anything else i think we're both lost in a story so keep going <laughs> it starts to get really interesting um so at this point i'm i'm thinking like okay the the once in a lifetime big break happened and didn't work so if, if lightning can strike once maybe we can make it strike again I will say at this time, you know, going through all this stuff I went through where I was early on, like, yeah, I want to be a superstar. I want to be, I've kind of learned that maybe I'm more on the creative side where I enjoy the process, creative processes. I enjoy um, some performances, but like the whole look at me kind of thing that has completely disappeared. Um, the idea of 
being some megastar, you know, it's like, I, do I like that? I don't know. It, it, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. So that's turning in the back of my head, but still I want to connect. I want to have a wide audience. Um, so Better Off Gone comes out and it's streaming really well. I mean, um, John had it, I think, in Hot Country. It was doing better than most of the songs in the Hot Country playlist um, on Spotify. So this is about the time that Atlantic Records in New York um, is like, hey, we want to do, we want to do something, a co-venture with Big Yellow Dog, my publishing company. So they're going to, they're like, we're going to spend, um, I guess, I think it was half a million, $400,000. We're going to give you for promo money. You got to hire your own radio staff. That'll get you six months down the road, maybe five months down the road. So bam, it's back to radio tour. It's back in a car, radio station to radio station. At this point, I've done three, three radio tours, um, been to the same stations. You know, I'm hitting the same conference rooms for the third time in every state, uh, every little town with a radio station. Um, it's like, yeah, I'm back here at K-Drug in uh, Visalia, California to play in your conference room again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was crazy. Um, but I did it. We went through the whole country and the song was just really, really doing great. Um, we broke into the top 40 um, and we ran out of money. So the thing is, this is the interesting part is that Warner Brothers Nashville and Atlantic Records are cohorts, right? It's like a sister label. So the guy in New York was like, hey, I don't know if I want to invest more money into terrestrial radio, um, but just get him over to Warner Brothers Nashville, use their radio promo staff. And it's the same, it's the same deal. You're on Atlantic Records. So there I am back over at Warner Brothers with Scott Hendricks and uh, for the seventh or eighth time, you know, um, I have to play for their whole staff in this big room. And then they all come through and they tell me like, Hey, I'm your new promotion coordinator. Hey, I'm your new marketing guy. It's like, Oh, so I guess I have a record deal at Warner Brothers now, you know, and that's what it, what it felt like, you know, um, and this is going to be now promoted by Warner. Um, and the song's flying, you know, it's streaming like crazy still. And then I get a call, like, I don't, everyone went silent and I get a call like maybe five, six days later and they're like, Warner Brothers won't do it. They won't jump on board. They're not gonna do it. At this point you start wondering like, did I make somebody mad somewhere along the way? Um, did it, is there something I don't know about? Um, is there something personal? But I, I can't ever think of anything um, <clears throat> uh, really odd. So um it completely died at country radio um because if there's no promotion you know they're not going to play it um still streaming i mean it still streams i think it's got 52 million on on spotify streams um and it still does really well and we were to the point where now we're touring europe um selling out venues in germany and scotland and um you know london i mean it's just it was it was crazy um to know that we were our touring was doing that well. We're selling out in Seattle, San Diego, Buffalo, New York, uh, but the label won't come near us, even though our sister label promoted it all the way into the top 40. So that's when I was like, 
screw this, you know, I, I can't do this whole, you know, deal with the corporate politics thing anymore. Um, and that's when, around the time I found out my mom had uh, stage, I think it was stage three or stage four cancer. And I'm like, looking at the years that have just flown by. I mean, this at this point, it's been 12 years since I moved to Nashville. Um, I'm in my mid thirties and um, it's like, I completely have missed out on any kind of family time that I had, would have had if I would have been home. I've been in Nashville and it's been a fun adventure. Um, I'm still going to make music, but um, you know, it's just, it's becoming really hard to deal with the industry and the fact that I got family dealing with this at home. So we, and we had just bought a new house in Thompson station, in Tennessee, um, just built it. Um, and, we turn around it, you know, eight, nine months later, have a for sale sign in the yard um, and moved. We moved to Kansas and that was, um, that was really hard, but it was also good to be around family. It's been a big adjustment. But uh, since when we moved back, there was a lot of things that happened, um, you know, career wise that have almost been better. Um, uh, other songs really started working, touring picked up, got more busy. Um, so things have grown a lot since I've been here in the last two years since I've moved home. Um, and uh, it's really been, really been great. And I don't have to deal with a, a major label telling me what to do. I still work with Big Yellow Dog. I'm still signed there and they're great. So I'm, I feel like I'm kind of one foot in, one foot out. Um, even if I'm completely both feet in, it, at least I get to feel like in my head that I'm not um, stuck in a, in a rat race. I'm curious, uh, which was harder to deal with being homeless at one point or being the up and down that you experienced with the labels when you thought it was so close every time. Hmm. Uh, I think that was harder. Um, being homeless that, yeah, it was like the worrying about money and stuff. Sure. Worrying about how you're going to eat maybe, but that was, I don't, that was exhilarating me for some reason. That was really exciting. And it felt like I'm on the hunt, you know, and then um, it makes you, I look back and appreciate those days that kind of, you know, maybe give you some character. And so what would you say that are the keys? Would you say are keys to your success? Oh gosh. Um, I think perseverance really, you know, just kind of digging in and saying, I'm not going to accept failure as an option. Um, no matter how many times I run into a wall, it's like, just, just keep going, figure out a way around or over or through whatever you got to do. Um, and yeah, just, just never saying, you know, never accepting no. And did the no's get easier the more you heard them or did it, did you become numb? Yeah, I fully expect a no. And, you know, that's the one thing that, that, that has messed with me um, over the years is like, I'm used to people at some point you hear no so many times that you consistently just assume that everyone thinks you stuck. You know, you hear it that many times. Mm -hmm. So it'll mess with your performance ability um, to the point where you have to kind of realize like, that's just industry people. These people out here just want to be entertained. They want to come listen to music. And I've had to really, really walk myself through that going like, 
you know, separating the music industry from people who consume music. Um, it sounds like towards the end there too of your time in Nashville, it felt, at least it sounded to me like you felt like you were really producing some and putting together some really authentic songs, like true to what you wanted to be doing. And then yeah. still hearing the nose. Yeah, for sure. And obviously I, I still don't think I've made that like um, the record I really want to make yet. Mm. You know, like that's still on the horizon. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it was really interesting this year because we had a really big um, year for shows come in. It was like our, you know, our highest offers, you know, it was like, okay, we finally have dug our feet in and, and made ourselves a, a, a kind of a mainstay here in, in the touring industry. And of course, everything is getting canceled, but um, still, it, it, it really felt good to, to see everything coming in and like, these are, I would have never actually thought that I was going to getting these shows offers, these show offers at these festivals, you know, um, it, it was, it was really cool to see all that start happening. What have you learned about yourself throughout your journey? Uh, a lot. Um, I, I think I've, there's, I think I've learned that, um, I kind of enjoy a good challenge. Um, I enjoy, things being difficult and figuring out a way to um, make it work anyway. Um, I've also figured out that, um, you know, I need to sometimes calm down the voices in my head, you know, that can get really loud and busy up there um, and just kind of relax and, and just take it one step at a time rather than trying to tackle the whole thing at once. So, um, cause I'm a really laid back, chill person. Um, but there's a lot going on up here for somebody who's laid back and chill, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of voices telling me, no, you can't do this. And you, you end up fighting yourself half the, half the time. I mean, you become your own worst enemy, you know? Do you feel that you've made any sacrifices along the way? Yeah. Um, some good, some bad, you know, like sacrificed a lot of time with, um, Jill, when she was at home as a new mom, you know, uh, I wasn't around for a lot of that. Um, I was home, you know, weekly or, you know, every other week, but it was for short amounts of time. And, you know, that that's something that, that was a, mostly time is the sacrifice time away from, you know, being able to call my dad and play golf with him or, um, go to Thanksgiving, you know, just missing holidays and missing, um, funerals and weddings you know so yeah what advice would you give an aspiring uh, musician oh man it's a loaded question because um i guess i would tell them to to just be persistent and don't get discouraged um because you're going to get very, you know, some people don't ever have to deal with, some people seem to just, you know, either get lucky breaks or really talented. I got a few lucky breaks, you know, um, <clears throat> but most of those lucky breaks are offset by a thousand really unlucky breaks. So just stay persistent and you'll find out if, if it's something you really want or not. Um, do you think that the success you're experiencing now would be, as sweet, uh, for lack of use the cliche, uh, sweet success. But um, 
if you had not experienced what you did with the industry, do you think you would have enjoyed where you are now as much? No, I wouldn't have appreciated it. Um, there's so many things that I, I wouldn't appreciate that if, if I would have, um, if that first publishing deal that I had that I got, you know, a year after moving to town would have turned into me having hits on radio at 23 and 24 years old, I, it would have, I would have turned into an unrecognizable person. You know, I, there would have been ego out the, you know, out the door. I, I would have just, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. You know, I think I needed all the rejection and all the um, struggle and um, just getting knocked down continuously driving for hours and hours and hours across the country to play for 10 people at a time. Um, I needed that to like come just, Hey, you know, come back down. Um, it's, it's been good for me. It's fascinating, right? To hear you say that. Cause I think most people, when they think of making it, they think of, becoming that big star like that's the that's the goal right that's what that's what they're shooting for yeah but but in that I kind of learned that maybe that isn't exactly I mean I'd love to you know go go play um a stadium sure but I you know I feel like there's a difference between between being like a successful uh singer songwriter um with a lot of hit albums and being a famous person and like Pat you know, if you're on a major record label and you're doing the, the assembly line thing, it's all about like getting you as much exposure and um, red carpet placements as as you can get. It's not about how well can you write a song and and um, what what are your guitar tones like on this album. It's all about like just things that I'm not interested in. So, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you felt like at one point you used the term, they didn't realize that you were a quote hack. Uh, do you still ever feel like uh, you're kind of faking it or people are gonna find you out as being a fraud? Sure, all the time. Yeah, that's just something I accept though. I think that's just kind of by nature um, who I am, but I, it also keeps me curious too. Um, I love always learning new things and I love talking about them, um, but in my head, it, you know, whether it's music or any other subject, you know, but in my head, I always assume that there's actually a real expert out there who probably knows a lot more than I do. Um, so, but that keeps me curious to, to want to know more, you know, and, and that's good for me in music because if I felt like I was in virtuoso, which I know I'm not, you know, then the mystery's gone, you know. Well, kind of building off that, Kevin and I met in grad school when, um, we were both from, from different programs, kind of found ourselves in the similar place of studying expert performance. Um, and there's this ongoing debate, right, of nature, nurture, and you know, what, what's more responsible and, and things like that. And an extreme view on the one hand is we're the nature side, we're, we're born to be something or we're born with talent. And then the extreme view on the nurture side is um, it's it's what we we do you know or what we experience or the resources that we have so where do you fall on that debate if you had to give a percentage to each uh, what are your thoughts on that oh man that's tough if you would have asked me at the beginning of this entire journey when I started out versus asking me now my answer would be completely different um, but I would say I've, I'd be 80 20 
80 falling on the nurture side, you know, 20 being the, the nature side. Um, yeah, I think it's something I really, really just worked at. What, what would it have been if we asked you years ago? Oh, uh, I was born to do this and <laughs> I'm amazing, you know? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I probably would have said something terrible like that. <laughs> Um, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you feel is important for the listeners to know? Oh, not too much. I hope I didn't, I, when we were moving on early on in the story, I kind of realized this is going to be a long story. So I skipped a lot um, of, of small details just to get to the overview of the story. And, and there are some timeline things that um, might not be perfect, but I hope I, I didn't bore anybody with the, with the story. And I, I hope uh, you got everything out of it that you're looking for. Yeah, we did. Um, so far, everyone's felt that they've spoken too long and nobody has. So. <laughs> it's, um, it's on us. It's how we, how we set this up. <laughs> um, and final question, what is the biggest takeaway from your story? Um, biggest takeaway, I guess, would be, and this isn't like the, I'm a really optimistic person, but this isn't the big shiny takeaway. Like, this is the, the realistic um, thing that, that if you set out to do something, you might not get, you know, what you think you're going to or what you um, plan on getting. It might go a completely different direction. That at the time when you set out to do it, sounds depressing or sounds um, like a terrible end result. But it ends up if you're working hard and you're enjoying what you do while you're working at it, it you know there's never going to be a better result. It's like, just, just go do it, be persistent um, and consistent, just show up and do it. And it'll turn out, it'll turn out for the best, you know? There are one follow-up question I have. There are um, different kind of versions of optimism, I guess you could call it. What's your definition? Is it always thinking that, things are possible. How do you kind of define for you what optimism means? Uh, yeah, like it'll work out, you know, um, don't worry about it. It'll work out. I'm not a, I'm not a big worrier, but, um, I think it's just like always having the big vision, always the big idea, like no matter how many times, uh, somebody says, well, that's really not possible or that's not going to work out. It's like in my head, it's like, well, I'll figure out a way to make it work. I don't know how I'm going to get there. Um, but yeah, we're definitely going to do uh, a 20, 28 um, national park tour with 40 foot holograms. I don't know how that's going to happen. <laughs> and I'm going to do it. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, Logan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We are fascinated by your story. And uh, again, thank you for being with us. And thank you guys so much for having me on. I, I appreciate it and really enjoyed talking to you. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved. <laughs>